The topic for this episode is understanding relationships and how to get them back on track. It's a fairly long one, but it's a big topic. And my guest, Dr. Carrie Ann Cook, PhD, shared so much great information. When this episode was originally recorded, there was some discussion with Dr. Carrie Ann about the dry weather in the region of New South Wales, Australia, where she lives. Since then, there have been some terrible bushfires. And if you're listening to this episode during the Australian summer of 2019-20, you might consider a donation if you have the means. I gave to the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, which depends heavily on amazing volunteers. But there are many other options, including GoFundMe campaigns, some to help animals injured in the fires, including the gorgeous and iconic koala. Oh, and a little uh, thing about the episode itself. There's a small whooshing background sound on a couple of occasions. My apologies. I know a lot of you are seeking a higher quality of life, and I don't know anyone who wants the quality of their life to get worse, but that can happen when you're stuck in a rocky relationship or going through a difficult separation and divorce. My name's Liz Rankin, and I've created the Separation Fix with the intention of turning away from that mess and in the direction of a brighter future. I hope you find this episode interesting, and thanks for listening. Welcome. Today, I'm so delighted to be speaking with Dr. Kieran Cook, who is a psychologist, who holds a PhD, and is the discipline lead of counseling and mental health program at the University of New England. Welcome, Carrie Ann. Oh, thank you for having me, Liz. I'm really excited about talking to you about uh, what makes good relationship. For those of you who don't know, Armadale is about halfway where the university is, halfway between Sydney and Brisbane, but it's west on the northern Tablelands. I'm a bit embarrassed to say, Carrie Ann, that I haven't been to Armadale yet, but I've been close by at another Tableland town in Burrell. So what's it like uh, living and working in Armadale? Well, I'm actually a Queensland girl, so from the <laughs> last 25 years, and I took the um, position down here as an end-of-career role, possibly not going to be the end of the career, but it's been a really good opportunity to teach um, in counselling and mental health with students at the end of my career because it's lovely to have that practice and the academic base. So, And living in Armadale is a joy because it only takes six minutes to leave home and then work <laughs> and that's unheard of when you live in the city <laughs> a bit challenging here at the moment because we do have some bushfires around the place so they've got that awful juxtaposition of very very dry drought uh, lots of wind and um, yeah some fires have taken off so it's a tough time I think for people in rural places with all of those things so yeah, it is really tough uh, last week I was speaking to some farmers out your way and they were lucky enough they'd found some land down actually all the way down in Victoria to send down their cattle so, yeah here in Australia as the summertime comes it's all on everybody's mind isn't it yeah yeah it's it is it's a difficult time we were just talking yesterday about how difficult it is for people that you know who live on the land and for couples as well and families the stress involved in trying to have a you know run a farm when you have no control over the weather and you know have no control over the you know 
the, the environment. So they just bought a whole lot of feed, you know, $18,000 worth of feed for their stock that's just gone up in smoke from the fire. The stress that puts on relationships and people's mental health is enormous, yeah. So they're things, I guess, that people in the city and, and I found how do you empathise or understand what that's really like? It's very challenging. Mm. Yeah, it's just more, I guess it's the more contact you have people going through it, the more you are aware of it. I mean, as I said, after last week's uh, interaction with this amazing couple, it's really given me a, uh, a, a new, a better perspective on it. Just touching upon some of those um, external pressures on relationship, in this case, you know, living living on the land at the moment. It t- does tie into your career as a lecturer. And uh, how did you get involved originally in counselling and with relationships? Oh, good question, Liz. Um, I think I was like most other people. I was in my early 20s and I got married and had a baby and then thought this relationship is really not working and I don't understand why. I had already had a degree in psychology, but that certainly wasn't shedding an light on this relationship issue I had. I um, applied to what was back in the day in the late 1980s marriage guidance and they at the time offered a traineeship. So I spent two years working, I guess, doing lots of volunteer work and working for very low cost training as a relationship counsellor um, some nearly 30 odd years ago. And um, it certainly helped me understand uh, what happens in relationships and I guess I've used that as a foundation and over the last 30 years built a more complex understanding of how relationships work, both in terms of working with hundreds of couples. Being in two marriages myself, I've now been married for 15 years to my second husband <laughs> and that relationship has a very different trajectory to the first one and also working and learning the theory about all the research that's really happened in the last probably 50 years and how relationships work. Well, then, with all that experience, you would probably have some generalizations or specific advice about what makes for a good relationship? I I do now, I guess. um, I had the privilege many years ago in that early training to read an article and someone put forward a model that I thought really helped me make sense of how relationships work. And the way I understand it now, Liz, is it's one of those things, it's, it's simplistic. It's like looking at a car, knowing a car has a body and wheels and a motor Understanding how they all work together is another another whole dimension. But the way I understand relationships is that each person comes to the relationship, imagine carrying a bag, and that's the bag has all of their history in it, their family of origin, their experiences, their beliefs, their thought systems, all of those things. But when you get two people together, you end up with two bags. <laughs> and then what's going on between the people are the relationship issues. And the way that I understand them is in a fairly simple model that I've named the relationship map. And it looks at five major constructs. It looks at how committed the people are to their relationship. So we know if people are really committed to being married, they can or to be in a de facto or whatever relationship we're talking about, both whether it's a heterosexual or a homosexual relationship, any sort of relationship. If you're committed to the relationship and working on it, you've got a much better show of moving through the difficult times. Also, if you can communicate and communication skills, as we know, it's a simple word, but how to do that effectively and between people is quite complex. We also, I also look at how people manage conflict. 
And that's the differences between the two. And that can be just difference of wanting to go Chinese for dinner one night and the other one wants to do Indian. Like how do you manage that in your relationship? Another part of it is intimacy, which is about emotional intimacy. And that's can I trust this person? Will they emotionally hold and contain me? Do I feel safe with them emotionally? And the final construct is around uh, sex and whether sex is appropriate to have in a relationship or not. Not so appropriate in a workplace, much more appropriate in an intimate relationship. So they're the five constructs. And so when I'm working with a couple and focusing on a relationship, I look at how those constructs all interrelate and how they work together and how where the strengths are with the couple. Are they really good at communication but not so good at providing intimacy and support to each other? Or are they highly committed but can't manage conflict? And so when I hear people's stories, I listen to what, what's happening in those relationship constructs and often what's going on in the person's personal bag starts to unpack into the relationship. So there might be how they see their family management compared to how they're now managing conflict or how their partner's engaging with it. And that's where the complexity comes from. So it's a simple model, but depth and complexity to truly understand what's happening in the relationship. I find that model so interesting. I'm not a counsellor, but I, of course, like reading and learning more about relationships. And one that just popped out to me then is, this issue, I think your number four in your map, intimacy and the issue of trust. Because when you read through, you know, John Gottman's work or um, Sue Johnson's work, they really talk about, you know, this importance of trust, this responsiveness. I loved something, and I'm not going to get the quote exactly right by John Gottman, but it was sort of, you know, when you really need me, the world stops and I listen. And he just yeah. sort of said, like, you know, if he had a motto, that would be it. And then alternatively, you know, the unhealthy motto, if there's such a thing, would be, hey, don't come to me with your problems. <laughs> so, and so, that, you know, so when you talk about intimacy and emotional trust, that one just like popped out at me. And look, I think well, this is a really good point because when I see couples and certainly my own experience in relationships, Managing intimacy is it's almost like a um it, it's it's the in-between part in our relationship that can't really be seen. It's really it's a felt experience and you know when you when you've got someone's back. And like you said, the research that Gottman did in, in terms of relationships, he put a whole lot of um, couples into like sort of like a self-contained unit and he filmed them, him and his wife, and they had them all attached to measures of blood pressure and stress and a whole lot of other things. But they filmed them between 7 in the morning and 9 at night and then over a weekend and then they collected all of this data from lots of different couples and have actually now developed a whole range of outcomes and relationship measures. But what he did say was that you could see very clearly if a partner did not respond to someone with a, oh, honey, look at this sunset, then it's unlikely that they're going to respond with, oh, my God, I think I've, you know, I've, I've just lost my job or whatever it is, yeah. So this intimacy is a really important part of relationships and it's also about our 
what what goes in there too, Liz, is what's called attachment, your attachment history, when between the ages of zero and three. <laughs> and so we learn how to be with other people and what we can expect from them. And it's not you can't change your adult attachment, but if you're not aware of the attachment style you have, then it's likely you're not really aware of what you need in a relationship and what you need your partner to provide to you and also what they need and how you can provide their needs. So it's quite, you know, there's a whole lot of layers in there. Mm, it's fascinating. <laughs> no. It really is. And I, I have to say, I grew up in my household with that quote, you know, everything you need to know or the important things are between zero and seven. And when you talk about that, um, the attachment theory, um, that fits in so perfectly there. Although, as you said, obviously, help you can learn your better attachment or develop um, um, insight into your own attachment style. Yeah. I know it's a, ta- a type of different intimacy but you know falling in love you know falling in love can be such a uh, delicious feeling I think if I have this right is this initial phase called limerence look um it it can be referred to as limerence but most people refer to it as the honeymoon phase oh yeah (laughs) everyone thinks there's honeymoon where you look at the other person and everything they do is perfect and they just you can make allowances for the way that they just uniquely um, leave their toothbrush in a certain place and the bottom line is mostly when we've fallen in love with someone we have this idolised view of them and we might note things down that we're not so happy with or, you know, most people call a bit of a red flag but when we have those strong physiological reactions to a person, we overlook all those things. We just go, no, that's not an issue for me. (laughs) You know, I can move forward. The fact that, you know, in the early days someone might text you 20 times to say I love you and how are you and it's great, a year down the track, 20 texts a day just becomes annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I don't ever think I had anybody text me 20 times a day. I'll take your word. Well, <laughs> Some people do, and it raises red flags for me. I can tell you. <laughs> oh dear. So, um, what do you think changes? What ends this blissful phase? You know, um, yeah. What What do you think? That- well, the research suggests that that blissful phase can go anywhere from about an hour on a date where you think I'm not seeing you again because you're annoying me already all the way through to, for most people, two to three years is the extent that even the happiest couple can stay in the honeymoon phase where they can accept and tolerate everything. We then know that people move usually into what we call the power struggle phase. Now, depending on how well they do the other relationship constructs really predicts how tough this relation, the power struggle phase is. Because if you can manage difficulties between the two of your differences, then you don't get into too much of a struggle. But, you know, everyone's heard of the seven-year itch, you know, of like things go for seven years. But my theory is that most people can't tolerate being in a power struggle for more than seven years. (laughs) They just go, I've had enough, I can't stand this, I don't like you anymore. Um, you're, You're so narcissistic, you're so involved in yourself, you don't respond to me. And all relationships go through all of those different iterations and it's that really that power struggle phase is the best place 
in the early times to intervene and to help couples navigate into a healthier relationship because you've got things to work with there, you've got differences and you can in the early days help people navigate that terrain. A bit like, you know, going down a river and the rapids start. <laughs> if you can intervene there and show people how to manage those rapids and know what's going to come up, they're much better prepared and able to navigate than if they just, if the rapids just get, get more and more and more rough and they believe that their partner's not helping at all paddle the boat, you know, <laughs> they're actually paddling in the opposite direction. And as you'd imagine in that analogy, things just get worse and worse, yeah, till someone jumps off the boat. I think that the power stage, I think I've also referred to it as sort of influenceability. That's the right way of explaining it. That is, you know, how willing one partner willing to listen to another person's point of view. And at critical times, you know, big decisions like buying a house or having a child, you know, how willing is someone to be influenced in these power dynamics? And I have also read, and and there's no sex in However, I have heard that women are more able to be flexible in this influenceability. So I don't know how that fits in with your power struggle. The power phase. struggle phase. Um, look, I think that probably for me it might be about how, it, not necessarily how influenced you are, but it really is about how flexible you can be because I think, Liz, the the reality is that when we're looking at differences, which is that conflict management space, um, the Gottman's research particularly said that up to 70% of issues between couples are unresolvable. They don't get resolved. You know, you squeeze the toothpaste in one way, I squeeze it in another way. We're not going to work out how to use the same toothpaste, but a resolvable issue is let's just have separate toothpaste. <laughs> You have yours, I'll have mine, we can move on, you know, because we can have toothpaste. But it's a bit hard to have separate children or, you know, so that's why or separate houses because that's why those things become bigger issues because they're, they're more influenced and they're what we often call deal breakers. So if someone has decided that they want children and the other party does not want children, it's not about how, you know, sometimes you might be able to influence someone. I certainly, with my second husband, wasn't keen to have children, spent some time, went, okay, let's, you know, let's go on that journey and see if that can happen. Uh, it didn't happen for us, but I was influenced and able to get on board with him. Had we stayed in that same place where I didn't want children, he did, it was unlikely that the relationship would actually move forward and that we, it's likely we would separate and he would have gone to find someone who he could, who he could have children with. So does that make sense? That you know, you know, it totally does. So what you're saying is that what's really critical to have a successful relationship is to work through the power struggles. Is that is that? Do I have that yeah, right? Absolutely. And you have to work out whether it's something that's a deal breaker for you. And everyone has to decide that for themselves. You know, sometimes people are in a relationship with someone who has such complex personal issues or behaviours that are untenable to the other person. I think stonewalling is a good one of those. Another one of Gottman's identifiers is when people stop talking to their partner. They just stop talking to them and sometimes for days on end. Now, for some people, that's a deal breaker that says, I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who cannot 
engage in a dialogue with me after a period of time of cooling down, you know. And for most people, not being spoken to for a day is quite uncomfortable and really, yeah, quite disrespectful. And if that goes on for days on end, then, you know, and certainly the, the psychology of the person who can't speak about it is limited, but they're the things that become deal breakers or become points of reference in a couple that really eat away at their relationship, that really the negative stuff starts piling up and you become very unhappy and the negative stuff starts to outweigh the positive stuff that was in the honeymoon, you know what I mean? It's a different pile of stuff now that people think, I don't want to do this, right? or they become very, very unhappy, they become depressed or, or whatever and start to really look at whether the quality of the relationship is like. Do you think there's any way, I mean, you and I, and I think most people in this field really want people to have happy, nourishing relationships. I mean, the cost to individuals and the community is just so high. So is there any way to predict what deal breakers you're going to end up having? You know, you're, <laughs> you're in this, or you're just too blind in your limerence, your honeymoon phase. Is there any way of, of, of knowing? I mean, Maybe with the baby one, you might be able to put that one out there. But then often people do think, oh, you know, I've heard from friends, oh, I, I think he'll change his mind. He doesn't want a baby now, but <laughs> I think he'll change his mind. So maybe even if people give you signs of the deal breaker, maybe you're not even going to listen to them or take it seriously. Look, and I think that's a good point, Liz. And one of the things I've come to, as I said, that I thought I would end up in retirement, but I'm possibly not going to, is that. 30 years, I've just, I, I truly deeply believe that there's a space between when there's the honeymoon and then people start to move into this other more uncomfortable power struggle phase that if we were to provide people with a model that's not counselling, and I can talk a little bit about that later on, what counselling looks like, but relationship coaching, it's helping people take what they have and get the best from it. Every tennis player has a coach. Every sporting team has a coach successful businesses have coaches and if we can start to educate the population that you can have relationship coaching which will help you in those early phases to navigate that space and if in early phases you can understand it might be a deal breaker but at least you haven't been through seven very ugly years of arguments and struggle and awful things if you can come to that conclusion much earlier on, that this is not actually going to get resolved and what does that mean? But also, more importantly, can you can you communicate about it? Can you provide that emotional support to your partner when they're not dealing with things okay? So I truly now believe that relationship coaching is what we need and that's certainly where I'm going to, once I leave the university next year, is moving to offering retreats in relationship coaching so couples could come along with other couples, we'll do an education process, we'll immerse in what's happening in their relationships. They'll also have to go away and practice because there'll be retreats and um, in lovely places like Bali. And so they can um, engage in those, learning lots of skills and then having coaching to help them really grow and develop to be, you know, play the best relationship game that they can play. I really like this idea of coaching um, on a variety of levels. For one thing, I, and you probably know from all your work, that men 
don't seem to want to so much in counselling. So um, one of the things we did talk about a little while ago in one of our earlier discussions was about the different sorts of approaches that you can have. And one of them is that you can go to relationship counselling or you can go to see a psychologist or you can go to a psychotherapist and they all offer different things in different avenues. But essentially most people go to relationship counselling many years after the first discomfort arises you know so it's a bit like if you had a pain in your stomach and you ignored it for six months but then in fact if you ignored it for five years (laughs) it's likely that that pain will have caused a whole range of other things to happen in your body and relationships are just the same that people see counseling in lots of ways as a last resort they don't understand that if you're talking to a stranger about your relationship, that that person, it's a bit like taking your car to the mechanic. We all know we need to get our car serviced every six months or so many kilometres. If you don't, then you run the risk of something going wrong with your car, which then affects all the other bits, and eventually your car's not going to work properly and it will cost you a lot more money down the end to get it fixed or you get rid of it. And that's a bit what is what happens in relationships. These people don't get them serviced. They don't get the basics done and they just expect that their relationship will continue on and work properly. And I have no idea in lots of ways what that's based on because most of us have not got a healthy relationship model. You know, they have, if we think 50% of the population end up in divorce, 70% of second marriages where there's a family divorce, where are the healthy relationships that people are saying, well, I know how to do it because I've seen it? They, they don't have a model. Well, it, it stumps me as well. And I, I'm actually a bit flummoxed about why governments <laughs> haven't entered this space a little bit more because it's a huge economic issue. It's a huge health issue when families break up. It really impacts on so many aspects of this, the general community. And a lot of these campaigns, public health campaigns, have been so successful you know, in Australia in the past, like um, Andy Kidderman from Melanoma, you know, slip, slop, slap, or quit smoking campaigns, they really, the prevention does work. So it's really quite astounding to me sometimes that government hasn't entered this sphere more to put more messages out there um, about, you know, what makes for a healthy relationship. Well, I think part of it, like, like we, were, we were talking about, is that Whilst relationships, you can understand them like a car in one way, they're more complex once they start to all work all in the system. And I think that's the, the issue with relationships, that each each relationship has an ind- two individual parties and the relationship that emerges from that. So whilst there's some themes, I think it's, it's a, a much more complex than we were able to do in a public health sense of, you know, stop smoking is a pretty clear one. It's not good for you. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's been a huge amount of money invested in the domestic violence in the campaigns to reduce that, but it actually hasn't really, and we don't know whether it's had very little impact or whether people are identifying it more and that they're recognising that what they're involved in is domestic violence. And domestic violence is not just someone, you know, phys- being physically violent. There's a whole lot of emotional components to that. So I absolutely agree with you that I think relationship health is a public issue 
I don't know that we're anywhere close to knowing what are the leverage points that are going to make a difference for people. But I personally think that if we can improve people's skills in communicating, in managing their differences and and managing emotional intimacy, then we'll go a long way to helping people have healthier, better relationships. And even if the relationships don't endure, they will have much more functional endings. There won't be bitterness. There won't be the clog up of acrimonious divorces in the system, I would imagine, you know, and that's another whole discussion down the track, I think. Well, you don't like my new slogan I just thought of for public health, how about uh, open your ears, open your eyes. Open your heart. (laughs) (laughs) Listen. Listen. (laughs) Yes. But it's a bit like organisations have respect and communicate. Respect is the most common value that an organisation has. But when people are behaving disrespectfully, they they see it's the other person's problem, not theirs, you know, often. So I think that's where the complexity comes. And it's a bit like healthy eating. We all actually know what healthy eating looks like. We know what we should be eating. And we know how we should be exercising, but we still have an obesity issue in Australia and the world. So I think as a psychologist, I go, okay, let's just retreat back into my little space of working with small groups of people. If I can change the world one one couple at a time, that's probably where I'll focus. Well, I think the coaching is a fantastic idea because um, you touched upon a sporting analogy and one way I see it is that no, it's really bad when you, for say, tennis, which is my thing, you're serving the wrong way. You're tossing that ball over and over and over again. Not only are you not going to win that game, you're actually practicing something that is getting worse and worse and worse because you're in that same groove. So you're practicing the wrong thing. So that's really, yeah, practicing the wrong thing is just destructive. And, and like you said, for most people, we try something and even if it vaguely goes, if the ball goes over the net, then we think, right, well, this is the right way to do it. <laughs> um, but like you said, you might well be practising a style that is ultimately really unhelpful to you and the other person on the other side of the net. And I think that's, you know, that's a wonderful way to understand it. For sometimes it's the minutia of what we say, the intonation and the essence of whether you can think your partner has your very best interests at heart. You can have a misunderstanding, but if you truly believe your partner has your back and has your love and best interests at heart, you can say, I get that you did that, but I, I understand that wasn't your intention, you know, and you can resolve things. But if you think they're out to get you, <laughs> then, boy, you're going to have a de- very different response. I just want to talk a little bit more about this relationship map and coaching. Do you see potential there in your coaching that, like other forms of coaching, you can be told little changes that can make a big difference? Like, like as it once in back to the sports analogy. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's my idea that I will assess couples very carefully in terms of going into the coaching to make sure that they're not terribly entrenched in their issues. That, for example, they haven't been practising really poor technique for 10 years and then come to the coaching and go, okay, <laughs> um, I've had enough of this. You know, I really we need to get them in the early days. I think once people have moved out of honeymoon phase and are very early into 
recognising there's some differences in their relationship and some struggles, that's the point to intervene and to say and to work with the particular couple, also with other couples together so they can learn from each other, but to actually practise and understand both intellectually and emotionally intentionality in healthy relationships. And there's certain things you can do that will promote healthy responses and there's certain things you can do that are guaranteed to be destructive. So as people move from this honeymoon phase into, I guess, more normalised relationship, what is the beginning of a rift? What do you see as the problems that people should watch out for? When people start to... Yeah, not, it's almost like the rose comes off the coloured glasses. <laughs> they start to see their partner with not their best interests at heart or that they think their partner's judging them or that they think their partner, you know, and, the, and I think Gottman's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse where people start to criticise people or the silent treatment starts to emerge or that people really start to make contemptuous comments not only about their partner, but in front of other people. they It's the one-upmanship that starts, you know, and people start to engage in those things. Even in tiny little ways, that's the indicators that you're starting to head down an unhealthy road. And it's interesting what you're saying there because I think what happens is that something goes wrong, a little thing, but you don't realise that it's not going to go away. <laughs> this thing this this particular issue and you just and it keeps on coming up and up over and over again and you think the first few times you see oh it's gonna go away dust it under the carpet but then there begins to be a lot of things under that carpet so it's that early recognition that this issue either the topic or sort of behavior isn't going to go away by itself sure and what you're saying is that you'll find that the same issue comes up time and time again sometimes in different formats, but often in the same format. Someone doesn't feel listened to. Someone feels like they're not, you know, um, yeah, that they're not engaging in physical intimacy anymore or sex. You know, one partner's sex drive outweighs the other one, but other one's basically saying, well, you're not actually doing any of this stuff, so why should I actually engage with you on that? You know, why should I meet your needs when you're not meeting my needs? And that's very, quite a simplistic dance can be acted out in so many ways but it's really interesting psychologically when people start to look for something then they'll find it if you close your eyes and look around the room and think is there anything red in my room when you open up your eyes what happens I saw actually behind you on your calendar the red (laughs) the writing on the wall right behind you yeah but what people do is exactly what you did Liz you start to look for it if I where's the red people will look for the red so if you start in your relationship to look for the fact that your partner's not doing what you want them to do you're going to find lots and lots of evidence for it (laughs) however if you start to look for the fact that your partner has your best intentions and your relationship at heart then that's what you're going to look for you're going to look for the good not the not what's not working but it does once again come back to what you're saying earlier just about um connection and i and the word attunement because if your if your partner is coming to you with these problems over and over and over again 
they sometimes get louder and louder and angrier and angrier. And so the person might have a really legitimate problem, but to be heard, they feel they have to get louder and louder. And I think the dance then becomes the other partner retreating, retreating, withdrawing, withdrawing, and the other person getting louder and angrier and the person possibly retreating more and more away. You've just described what we see in most relationships when it goes into distress and what happens is we watch a pursuer-withdrawer dynamic where one person constantly tries to pursue and the other person withdraws away and that creates this high, this tension in the emotional intimacy because one person feels like the other one is consuming them and they need some distance and ultimately it either escalates into something very unpleasant or that the pursuing partner gives up and that's where you you hear the old analogy we just grew apart which means we actually stopped listening and understanding to each other and and really caring until eventually there was nothing to care about. And that's why you hear sort of often in those relationships with when the children, you know, have grown up and left home and there's nothing left because those people have no intimate connection anymore because for whatever reason, at some point in the past, it was extinguished for people to remain, you know, civil but not happy and not healthy. And it's interesting because there is such a rise in, in great divorce and I heard someone talking it about it and, and it was really that, you know, when the children leave home, you're sort of facing that long time ahead with them. And at that time, you also have to do a lot of care for that person. They haven't been there for me. I don't want to stick around and I'm not going to be there for them anymore. So it's really very sad at that stage. And so there's lots of things in, in what we call the, the relationship development cycle where there's peaks and troughs, you know, when we have that first baby, when children go off to school, when adolescents, you know, interesting, you look in developmental phases, when our, when our children are in an adolescent phase, we're up in midlife, in a midlife crisis going, is this all there is? Am I going to keep working endless hours and days and being so busy at home taking care of everything? Is this how my life is? You know, I mean, there's all these different phases that we know. And and once again, we get back to if you can have someone who can help you understand how to best manage that particular phase, it's likely you can move through it with less destruction in your relationship and with more resources and resilience and care to move on to the next stage yeah and I think in all those big transitions you know that we're talking about whether you know especially you know having children it once again ties back with Gottman's motto of when I need you are you there and alternatively if someone is retreating from you it's like an echo chamber (laughs) that no one is no no one is there really wanted to talk to you about counselling and, you know, because a lot of people haven't been to counselling and the different roles of, say, a counsellor, psychologist, a therapist. So we talk a little bit about about counselling and what counselling offers people. I think um, just clarifying counselling and counselling, unlike lots of people think, counselling is about someone helping you to facilitate take conversations so you can hear what's happening for the other party, what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what, you know, their hopes and dreams. So counselling I very much conceptualise as a process where something people recognise it's not working 
people, you know, having said that, people often come to counselling when a relationship is really in huge distress. There's too much history and they, you know, often you counsel people in order to separate well rather than stay together. But having said that, lots of couples I've worked with do stay together. They've learnt lots about the other party. And a good couples counsellor focuses on the health of the relationship and how the individual issues impact on that relation on their relationship. And it's it's very emotional work and each party needs to be very committed to the process to get the best out of it. If you want to go to a counsellor to see if they're going to talk your partner into staying, it's not going to work. Counselling is driven by the people, the counsellor has the expertise on the process and ways in which to get people to talk and do experiments and to try and improve their relationship. But as she said before, Liz, if you have been serving with the incorrect technique for a long time, changing it takes a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of concentration and a lot of work. And, yeah, so counselling is not going to be a panacea for lots of things. It can help people. It's useful. But if you leave it too late, a bit like going to the doctor with a pain in your tummy, after five years it's likely you've got some sort of form of cancer and it's not a good prognosis. So go to counselling earlier rather than later. So what one thing I think I picked up on there was that for the counselling to work, they both have to go motivated to yeah. improve the relationship. So when people are coming in, when the relationship is very distressed, someone might be dragged there so they're not motivated. Certainly. I've had people who arrive at couple counselling where, you know, they've come in essence to deliver their partner into the safe hands of someone um, so that they can, um, I guess, exit in a in a way that they know their partner's a bit supported. Often other people come and I, I it's interesting, sometimes you unfold a whole lot of stuff in, the, in couple counselling and get right down to the basics of saying this is what your partner wants but for whatever reason, and I certainly don't judge the other people, they can't give that to the person in that space in time. There's just they have no resources left they have no goodness you know a a sense of capacity to engage in that way anymore you know that they've they've left the run too late because it's really like relationships are like planting a garden is and you know like imagine at the beginning you've done the landscaping you put all the money in you got the turf down you put all these little baby plants in and you've got this plan of how well it can grow that's what we happen when we get married or we commit to someone we go this is going to be amazing and some people a probably don't even do the planning they just chuck a few things in and hope that it'll grow Other people plan to the nth degree or spend a great deal of money like on the wedding or, you know, putting the the landscaping out. But the reality is unless they keep watering it, nurturing it, and the plants that are in there are suitable to that environment, it's not going to flourish. We know with a garden you have to have plants suitable to the environment, you have to look after them, you have to nurture them. Some more or less work. But in the main, I'm living down here in drought. Nothing's growing. <laughs> and that's what happens in some relationships. If they're not looked after, and so, sometimes you have one party that's more responsible than the other, 
you know, and we see that particularly with women that they're overly responsible for relationship maintenance and then the woman says, I've had enough, I'm out of here, and the guy says, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, tell me what you want. And she's like, I've been telling you what I want for 10 years <laughs> and you haven't listened to me, so I'm not going to tell you anymore. So there becomes this, you know, that's the power struggle in its essence. When you consider, I mean, the person you choose as your, as your life partner, I mean, it's the most important, probably the most important decision of your life. And then not to nurture that garden, it's actually inexplicable to me. <laughs> I, really get, uh, I don't know why it happens. Well, I think partly because, not because people intend it that way. So sometimes we, we choose our partners very unconsciously. We think this is a great fit. Um, and it also gets back to that attachment need and what we need in a relationship and what we find is that some some couples can go through this journey and it's you know they might have ups and downs but it's you know all pretty they go on and they remain married for many many years and particularly you know look back in history the roles were very clear what people had to do and staying married there was the expectations Whereas today, in today's society, there's all different expectations about what you want in a relationship and what it needs to look like. But for most people, when they stop, when they realise that they're not getting what they want from their partner in one way or another, it becomes this engaged struggle. And in like the garden, it's the plant crying out for water but someone too busy, <laughs> too busy to water. And you say to the partner, you need to water them, and they go, but I'm too busy. I'm too busy doing this or whatever. But often people have a good, I think people do in the main have good intentions. Absolutely, when they get married, they want to be with their partner. But I think they often do not understand how much effort it takes to nurture a relationship into a healthy one. And I guess maybe it's not surprising because, I mean, it's an intimate relationship. And I suppose a lot of people don't have role models and also it's not like you can be a fly on the wall on, on a really healthy relationship. I mean, you know, who are who are our examples? I mean, who do we watch? I mean, I guess we have our parents if we're very lucky then. Um, and, and even people who've been in good, I mean, long relationships might not have good habits. So I, I guess that part of the difficulty I see as we talk is lack of examples Sure, and which the lack of examples leads to the lack of understanding. And like I said, it's like everyone having a car, but no one or very few people understanding how they work or what you need to do to maintain them. So after a while, a fair percentage of the population's car is going to stop working and fall apart. And exactly like cars, when our car starts to fall apart, we trade in and get a new one. And that's really what we've been doing in society. Rather than trying to understand how they work, we just trade them in and get new ones. And at best, you get a new one every two years. <laughs> we should, um, in Australia, we should have to get a green slip every year for our um, our marriage or our relationship. Oh, Liz, and, and honestly, that would be my dream come true. And I think you and I mentioned that in an earlier conversation about that, the, you know, a government a few years ago was wanting to give people vouchers. And frankly, I think that would be the biggest public health asset we could do is to give people a refund on their tax if they got some relationship coaching, just like a gym membership or whatever else. If this could keep people healthy, their relationships healthy, the flow and effect to children and families in our society, I think, would be enormous. 
we're simpatico because I had that same I, I had that same thought about a tax rebate because I might be a little bit out of date with the numbers, but I think about two years ago, um, AMP funded some research about the cost of relationship breakdown to the community. And the report was called for richer or poor. And I think it costs just in terms of like adjustments in the benefit system and on the court. So that's just quite direct costs was $16 billion. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, you know, maybe, you know, a tax rebate would be a good idea. And I know that, and I know that a lot of people sort of laughed at that idea about the vouchers, but I actually thought it was a, I thought it was a good idea. And then it gets back to, you need quality counseling. And what makes for a quality counselor? You know, if 70% of people who are working with councils, I mean, those are American figures. If 70% of people working with clients and partners aren't trained, what qualities do you think people should look out for when choosing a counselor? Well, I think if you're choosing a counselor or a psychologist or a psychotherapist to work with your relationship, you need to establish that they have the skills to work with the relationship that they can hold the two of you and focus on the relationship part in the middle. Those constructs that I talked about earlier, the five things that we need to look at is how committed are you, how well do you communicate, what's your conflict management like, how how you're managing your intimacy, how's your sex life. They're the things to be focused on because individuals will always want someone to substantiate their perspective of the world and as a counsellor, a skilled relationship counsellor, we acknowledge that different people are going to have different perspectives. That's how it is. It's how it impacts on your relationship. So I think sometimes, Liz, you know, I have to say word of mouth is probably the best way to source a good relationship counsellor. Then if you can't find someone word of mouth, you can look up the APS or the Australian Counselling Association and see who's trained in relationship counselling. And also, if you go along... And interview your relation, your counsellor and make sure you, you're happy with what they're providing because if, they, if you're not happy with them, you can just say, look, this is not a good fit for us and, and you know, and find somewhere else. We all go to the GP and sometimes we, the GPs we feel heard and looked after and other times we feel dismissed and not looked after and so therefore it's up to us to find, you know, and engage with someone who's really, it's really going to work. There's also... An organisation called PACFA, which is the Pacific Counselling Association, um, and that's a group too of family therapists. So, you know, if you look up relationship counselling, like I said, I would try first word of mouth if someone's been to someone and they think they're effective, or otherwise, you know, expand that search out. So, I just want to ask you one follow up question for that. You know, having worked in the family law system for a while, and you mentioned family violence earlier. I imagine there's very good screening for couples who are in relationships with family violence. There's been some more research around. It, it depends on the on the level and the, and the depth of what's happening between the couple. Couple. I mean, the reality is, domestic and family violence is the end result of a, of of the ultimate power struggle when one person has power over another and is hurting them. Um, either emotionally or physically. And when we recognise that dynamic in a couple, couple counselling doesn't work because you don't have that even playing field. You know, it's a bit like someone in the garden's got the poison and the other person has no access access to it. So we would strongly suggest that 
when we recognise that that dynamic occurs, it's usual that you would separate the couple out but then also talk to them individually about if they want their relationship to endure and to go back to a healthy place or to become a healthy place, they need to understand that having power over another person in whatever way they do it is not actually a healthy way. When you were just referring to couples who have issues of family violence, and you talked about separating them, that reminded me of one of my last questions I want to ask you is that, how do you feel about in in couple distress, how do you feel about when one person is going to an individual counsellor rather than like together? Individual counselling is really good if if the individual is looking at their individual issues. So it might be that, that one of them has um, a history of, you know, some adverse childhood events of neglect or abuse and that really frames up how they see their relationship or one party, for example, might suffer deeply with clinical depression or anxiety. Those things can be dealt with on an individual basis with an individual couple but and then the couple counsellor can work on how those things impact on the relationship. So it's quite doable to have to see a couple where one or both us having individual counselling around their individual issues and the relationship counsellor is focusing on the health of the relationship and the functioning of it. Okay, because I'd heard I've heard conflicting things about this concept about um, individual versus couple counselling. Because also I had heard that if someone is with in individual counselling, there might be a tendency for some counsellors to um, be focusing more on the client's, I guess, self-actualization, if that's an okay word to use. So sort of fighting more for the individual rather than the relationship. And that's what I'm saying. That gets back to the training of the, of the counsellor. That's why you need someone who's trained in couple counselling because you can't do in. Sometimes with inexperienced people, they try and do individual counselling with two people in the room <laughs> and you can't actually do that. Yeah, so that's the difference. That's the distinguishing feature. A couple counsellor um, by nature needs to focus on the relationship and if at all, you know, sometimes people have a sense that the counsellor may be aligning somewhat with the other person, but you can call them on that and say, I feel like, you, you know, you're not necessarily hearing what I've got to say and that's a lovely in vivo acting out of how relationships work. You're really working on that relationship with your counsellor as well. But if someone's trying to work on the individual issues with two people in the room and not focused on the relationship, then you're probably not doing relationship counselling. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Now, I just had one final question. Would you have a book or any other kind of research resource that you would suggest to a couple who are trying to increase their, your niece or nephew were getting married, for example, <laughs> would you have a book you'd wrap up and give them or would you have an online program you'd get them or would you just say, here's your Jetstar ticket in two years, come meet me in Bali for your What would you suggest to people especially in their early stages when they're just full of hope and they really really want it to they really want it to last two books one is one that i know you're aware of is is the five language love languages i think if you can understand your partner's love language and understand that theirs is likely to be different to yours when my husband continued to offer to cook dinner and unpack the dishwasher it didn't work for me i'm not an active service girl <laughs> But 
the more he spent time talking with me or buying these the particular flowers that I liked, that talked a great deal more to my love language. He's an acts of service guy, so doing stuff for him, he loves it. <laughs> and so I can do that. Um, so The Five Languages of Love, I think, is a really important book to understand in the basics. There's also a book by a guy called Harvel Hendricks called Getting the Love You Want. I think he's also written another book called Keeping the Love You Get. It's an old book, but a goodie but an oldie. And it's got really does explain relationships in quite a lot of detail, but it also gives lots of exercises for people to do. And so you can do them on your own or you can actually take that book along to someone and get them to coach you through it. At some point, your technique's probably not going to be that great. <laughs> so you can get a few pointers and, and move forward. But that's one of my favourites. But it's been around for a long time, but it does explain a lot about how relationships work. It's actually interesting. Years and years ago when I used to watch Oprah, <laughs> I mean, so long ago that I used to think record it when I was on during the way and have to watch it at night. That's how long ago we're talking. Um, uh, Dr. Harville used to be on her show and he was really amazing. And I haven't thought about that book for a long time. So that is a fantastic recommendation. And we have covered so much today and I am really so grateful for your time and your expertise. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. And Dr. Karen Cook, you like there that you weren't going to be at the university for too much longer. So what I'm going to suggest is I think some listeners are going to want to contact you, especially about this new course that you're going to do, Relationship Map, and some weekends or time away. So what I'm just going to suggest is that if anybody wants to learn more about that, they go to my website and send me an email and then I'll refer them to you when I have your new contact details. How does that sound? That sounds great. Thanks, Liz. Well, I'm going to, yes, I'll be leaving the university early next year and going to have a well-earned holiday for a little while, but then I will um, move forward with setting up the opportunity for couples to be involved in relationship coaching in a fairly immersed way. So I'll keep you up to date with those details. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Carrie ann and we'll speak again soon. Bye, Liz. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast and if something in the episode has motivated you, I recommend that before you take any action, you get professional advice because the conversations are general in nature and not based on your particular situation. Please reach out to me if you have any questions or if there's another topic you'd like explored. And if you know someone who might benefit from the show, remember to tell them about it or suggest my Instagram or website, www.theseparationfix.com. Good luck being your best self today. Just know I'm out there too, trying as well. <laughs>